Greetings, friends and neighbors, and welcome to episode 19 of the Community Solutions Podcast. Our podcast comes to you from the students, faculty, staff, and community partners associated with the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Indiana University Fairbanks School of Public Health in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm Jack Terman Jr., a faculty member in the department, and your host for this podcast. All elements of this podcast result from the hard work of our great students. I want to give a special shout out today to Madison, who graciously developed the beautiful new logo you see associated with our podcast. Our students are gifted in the arts, sciences, humanities, and most importantly, big compassionate hearts. As a reminder, throughout our 2019 season, Each episode is dedicated to a great book about community development, health, or conversations. Today, Sarah and Carly are going to discuss a great book entitled Walk Out, Walk On, A Learning Journey into Communities Daring to Live the Future Now by Margaret Wheatley and Deborah Fries. I love this book as it is formatted to take its readers on a learning journey. Sarah and Carly have a fun conversation centered around some of the places in the world where communities have taken non-traditional approaches to make great change, both for individuals in the community and their community as a whole. The book is inspiring and is going to challenge some of the traditional norms of community development. The stories it shares are vibrant and alive and motivating. You're going to learn from this book that we all have the capacity to make positive change in our neighborhoods. So let's take a listen and enjoy the conversation. My name is Sarah Giaquinta. And my name is Carly Sider. We are here to talk about the book entitled Walk Out, Walk On, A Learning Journey into Communities Daring to Live the Future Now, written by Margaret Wheatley and Deborah Fries. So let's get into it. Carly, what did you think about this book? I'm not going to lie to you, Sarah. It took me a minute to get into the book. The format and the writing, they're just not initially what I thought of their traditional public health book being. However, once I did get into it and I was comfortable with the writing style, I really appreciated and enjoyed how the book set up and took us on these learning journeys. What did you think about the learning journeys throughout the book? I actually loved that learning journey format, and it was something I'd never experienced before. Um, So I want to read to you a little bit of a passage so that you can um, feel what we felt as we were reading through the book. So Waking Up in Greece... Cries of morning greetings echo out across the ravine and bounce back at you from the neighboring hills. You poke your head out of the tent to see the brilliant Aegean sunshine illuminating a garden of herbs, wildflowers, and grasses. Nearby stands a 10-gallon jug filled with spring water that you can gulp down and splash on your face before dashing up to the main house to discover who's here. Yeah, it was those in-depth sort of immersive imagery of the places that we went throughout the book and the learning journey that you just mentioned that I really ended up appreciating. It made the whole story come alive. Um, It made the people and just everyone more vibrant. 
How about for the remainder of the podcast, we take everybody on a similar, smaller scale learning journey like they did in the book, starting in Mexico? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, So yeah, we started in Mexico, and that's where we learned about something called an Una Tierra, which is a university for individuals of different ages to come and they learn together. Uh, It was a different kind of university, though, with no curriculum, no formal classes, and no teachers. They were only really driven by a sense of community and a passion to make things better. And many people in Mexico consider the Unitiera, or this unique approach to learning, a true social movement. And it's a place where the ideas start. Yes, and as part of this model, we learn about the concepts scaling up versus scaling across. So in scaling up, it's taking one idea and replicating it over and over and over again without really taking into consideration the place that you are trying to do this new program or project, where scaling across is releasing knowledge, practices, resources, and allowing them to circulate so that others can adapt them to their own environment. Another great way to think of this idea is co-motion rather than promotion. So spreading ideas through contagion rather than pushing people into one particular direction. Yeah, and as a student of public health, the way the UNITIERA students approach challenges, um, that really, it really changed some things of how I was traditionally thinking about public health and what I've learned in my training. So, for example, we, um, we commonly follow the mantra, you never want to reinvent the wheel or don't reinvent the wheel. But as this book says, we do need to reinvent the wheel and it's never a waste of time. What we learn from others' successful innovations is that wheels are possible. And that really made me think. Mm-hmm. So, okay, on to our next country, Brazil. Yeah, traveling to Brazil, we are going to get a chance to witness 10 days of a 30-day long game a game that is played to change a community by unleashing their creativity and their capacity to discover their capabilities without having any of that traditional sense of power or wealth. I really appreciated the way that this chapter contrasted the old-fashioned community activism model that's really dependent on experts, persons of influence, control, strict plans. They contrasted that with this concept of play. And so to better illustrate that, here is how the book kind of varies the dialogue between those two different models. In the traditional model, we're asking, where's the plan? Why are we asking the poor, illiterate members of the community to do this urban planning? Who's in control? And in the play model, it's more, what does your community need? Here are some materials, show us what your dreams are and how we can achieve it. And before we begin, we join hands and we dance. I love how this group just proves all those traditional thinkers wrong. It invested in connecting a community through play, song, and dance. So Brazil was great, but let's head to South Africa now. Great. So um, in South Africa, we go to Jobert Park, and it's here that we learn about this country's history that's really rooted in racism and apartheid and this park's history of chaos and crime. It's also here, though, that we start to understand the true power of a community seeking solutions. Yes. And central to this part of the book was this concept of where do we even start? There were countless issues in Jobert Park crime, illiteracy, food scarcity, HIV. I mean, the list just went on and on and on, it seemed like. But they were able to create change in Jobert Park. And it all started with photographers wanting to tackle this issue of crime. They started taking photos of crime happening. And they were able to sort of 
get a role going for Jobert Park to really make a change. And this ended up leading to youth being engaged to vent their anger through arts rather than violence. And then mothers started to come in and they didn't want their children to be left vulnerable. And so they started creating preschools, which then addressed the literacy issue that they were having and facing. So not only were the children being educated, but other members of the community as well. They also had gardens and the food that was you know, grown in these gardens were taken back to the schools and it kind of all came full circle. And so they didn't just have that, where do they start? They just started. Yeah, again, this chapter really challenged challenged a lot of those typical public health um, approaches. So many public health initiatives, they really focus on a problem. So much of our work is dedicated to finding and labeling what's wrong and trying to solve those problems individually using specialists. And as the book talked about, these solutions often have little to do with the community itself. Um, We're often seeking simple solutions to individual problems, but as they showed in South Africa, it truly takes community engagement and a focus on place. Yeah, I loved this quote from that chapter. I participate, I share. I think it really speaks to, you know, being a part of your community. So on to the next, Zimbabwe. I absolutely loved the journey that we took in Zimbabwe. So we started um, with learning about the Kafunda Learning Village, which was a group of men and women, and they were led by a woman, Marianne Knuth. Um, She's devoted her life to teaching people to grow food sustainably, and that's actually a skill that was lost as people began to depend on the government for seeds, fertilizers, and other support. So that government help that you're talking about, Sarah, it's actually known as the Green Revolution. It was a way that the government was trying to combat famine by these systems to help produce high-yield crops to, you know, really address famine. Unfortunately, the aid that the government was providing created a culture of dependence for the people that were receiving the aid. Often when we are being helpful, we're also making the receivers of our help idle participants to the problem. The Green Movement made people so reliant on this new, better, more efficient system to grow their crops that they forgot that they were creative and had valid ideas and that they could do this on their own. So when those supplies ran out, they had to turn to their elders who taught them that they were capable and that they could go back to the ways that they did it traditionally, that they didn't really need that aid. Yeah, this chapter really kind of gets to the idea of those unintended consequences of programs. Uh, And I love the end. So the leaders at Kufunda Learning Village, they understood this. And when they were offered money to purchase an irrigation system for their lands by a group of very well-meaning members from a learning journey similar to the one we took, um, Marianne thanked them and she politely declined saying, for we are a demonstration center and how could we demonstrate ways of cultivating resilient food systems if we relied on a technology to which others had no access? Okay, so uh, we will now be leaving Zimbabwe and traveling to India. Yeah, here in India, this probably was one of my favorite places that we stopped on our learning journey. It's where we learn the importance of moving from a transactional culture to a culture of giving. And it was my favorite one because they gave us these words in um, the, the idea of homo giftus versus homo economist, which I'm gonna explain a little bit later. But uh, it's this meaning that we should become a culture that values giving over personal economic gain. But I want to hear kind of what you you thought of the chapter before I get into those words. 
Yeah, so I liked in this chapter that the authors introduced the term Swaraj, and that's uh, essentially a rejection of the ready-made world that you and I live in right now, um, yep. where everything we consume has been processed, it's been made by someone else and prepackaged, and introduced the idea of upcycling, um, which is the process of creating new functional things from waste. And so they're really rejecting that traditional um, idea of just buying these pre-made things and going on these journeys of gratitude. And so each year, men and women in the area, they go on something called a cycle yatra. And that's where they travel on bikes. They don't have money. They don't have any belongings. And they just travel with gratitude in their hearts and in faith that they will be provided for. And so on their journey, they work for food and shelter. And they showed gratitude to the people that helped them with song and dance. That is an amazing example of how they are moving away from that transactional culture. So I wanted to share the story about Mukesh Ja, a farmer that created fuel from Gobar. So he had his personal cows, Gobar, which happens to be poop for all of you out there that don't know what it is. That's what it is. So he extracted the methane from the Gobar to create energy to power a stove, which led to more resources and more energy over time for other people to use. He was able to run a line um, with the methane gas to his uncle's house and help him out as well. So throughout this process, he also created fertilizer, and the farmers in the area really started to prize this fertilizer, and they started buying it from Mukesh Jat. And he had this thought that he could, you know, keep getting more cows and keep producing more fertilizer, or he could gift it, which is this homo giftus, this knowledge. He can gift that, and those farmers can recreate the system at their homes instead of he himself just creating more fertilizer, selling more fertilizer, which is that homo economis. So that was my favorite place, but on to the next, which is Greece, and I'm just as excited to talk about it. So as our journey is starting to come to an end, we find ourselves in Greece, and we are there for the third gathering of the Burkana Exchange, which is a gathering of men and women that are truly committed to that walk out and walk on. Uh, and many of the people there we've actually already met in the book. Um, this group of people, they lived, worked, they ate together for 10 days, and they had the goal of creating a space for locals to farm and learn how to live sustainably on the land. Yeah, a central theme to this chapter was the concept of leaning in when there was a conflict when it comes with this interdependence that they crea created by building these friendships over the 10 days. Um, perfect example was the great toilet paper debate. So essentially they were trying to decide what they were going to do for toilet paper, whether they were going to have, you know, the traditional toilet paper that you and I probably use at home or what they do in India or other local customs. And they were having this debate and everybody had three minutes to talk and some people were taking longer than three minutes. And so somebody spoke up and they said, hey, we really need to stick to the three minutes. Another person that English wasn't their first language reminded them of that and it really could have been a huge breakdown and they had spent this time though creating this friendship and these relationships so they were able to lean into that conflict and say sorry and figure out what to do about this toilet paper situation and it ended up being a green leaf that was local to the area that was the solution. 
Yeah, I love how they worked through that toilet paper issue and, and came out on the other end with a, a sustainable solution to carry them through the trip. Um, the authors also discuss the importance of understanding what an intervention is. And in intervention, what they say, it's always rooted in the belief that people need help and they can't help themselves. And what that does is it creates a power imbalance because people are either labeled as victims or helpers. And so the authors ask, how can we work together to create change if we aren't viewing each other as equals? And I think that, again, is a really important thought to take with us as uh, future public health professionals. Yeah, definitely. So um, we end our journey in uh, our neighbor state in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, so some of you are probably asking, why Columbus? Well, it's Columbus is considered to be especially ordinary. So, as the story from this chapter is going to show us, exceptional things can happen in especially ordinary places. Yeah, and it's in Columbus that we learn about the importance of leaders moving away from that hero model. So that model that's based on that powerful individual, it's highly controlled, that top-down, and moving on to the host model, where uh, a leader works with a group to problem-solve. It's not up to you the host to come up with the ideas. It's up to you to engage and empower the community to come up with their own solutions. And so across Columbus, leaders are embracing that model. And they've truly, this has really been a catalyst for the change in so many organizations. And they've been tackling really challenging, complicated problems like healthcare systems, homelessness, and food security, food insecurity. Um, so as we close, Carly, what did you think were the main takeaways of this book? So, you know, the concept, walk out, walk on. We are walking out of these traditional ideas of needing resources and high-powered leaders or specialists and walking on to these communities that they themselves can be resourceful and they can solve their own problems. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, this really is a book that all public health students and public health professionals need to read. As it points out, communities have what they need and they're capable of finding a way. So if we don't let the members of a community solve the problem, that's when we start to see those issues with sustainability and unintended consequences. Um, so to our listeners, as we close this podcast, this is what you can do. Walk out on the idea that somebody else can do it better than you or that you can do something better than the men and women living in a community. And walk on to the ideas and people that allow you to discover new possibilities in your, in your community. So thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe and share this podcast. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>